In the aftermath of the British occupation of the Philippines, it became clear to many Spaniards that the status quo no longer worked. They realized that the reason why the British had become so rich and powerful was because of how they exploited their colony's resources and exported them to Britain for manufacture and production. Thus did Spain's rival make a killing, with British merchants and the monarchy profiting from foreign trade. Spaniards in the Philippines started calling for more sources of revenue besides the tribute and royal subsidies. The galleon trade, which didn't really pay attention to locally produced goods, was simply not enough. The Spanish Philippines had to develop its own industries for export in order to profit from foreign trade. It was not until the arrival of a new governor-general in the late 18th century that the Spanish regime started to take action in reshaping its economy. In this episode, we will explain the different changes in Spanish Philippines as it entered the 19th century, and the signs of a nascent Filipino nationalism that started to pop out during this period. This is Philippine History Z. Following the death of Simon de Anda, the Philippines was initially ran by an interim governor general until 1778, when Madrid sent a young frigate captain to serve as Anda's official replacement. His name was Jose Vasco Ibargas. Like Anda, Vasco stands out among the Philippines' governor's general as one of the few to actually not half-pass his job. Progressive and idealistic, he sought to transform the colony into an Iberian metropolis in the Pacific. Most significantly, Basco saw the vastly untapped and largely neglected economic potential of the Philippines beyond trade with China and Mexico. He vowed to make the Philippines a self-sufficient Asian powerhouse. He lifted many of the restrictions that put a tight leash on Philippine commerce and opened up Manila's ports. French and British ships could now hoist their flags freely as they entered Manila with their wares. Besides organizing expeditions against Moro pirates, he was also able to curb Moro piracy by promoting trade with Mindanao for the first time in 30 years, establishing friendships with some Moro datus. Basco also lifted restrictions against the immigration of Chinese traders into the country, who slowly began returning. Basco identified agriculture as the key to Philippine prosperity and self-sufficiency. He promoted the cultivation of native crops like abaca or manila hemp, cotton, and cinnamon for export. He improved schools and promoted the dissemination of Spanish so that the natives could keep up on the latest agricultural techniques and technologies developed in Spain. Under Basco's leadership, two organizations were formed to realize his vision. The first was the Philippine branch of the Royal Economic Society of the Friends of the Country, established in Manila in 1781, which counted as its members the city's top businessmen and professionals. The Royal Economic Society had already existed in many other places in the Spanish Empire since the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment in the early 18th century. Like Britain's East India Company, its purpose 
was essentially to modernize Spain and its colonies. The Royal Economic Society offered prizes and rewards to farmers and those who discovered new valuable crops and other agricultural breakthroughs. It also established guilds for silversmiths and gold beaters in 1783 and the first paper mill in the Philippines in 1825. It even introduced minor birds from China to fight pest infestations. The second organization was the Royal Company of the Philippines, which was first authorized by the king in 1785. It was granted full control of navigation and commerce between the Philippines and Spain, as well as with other ports in Asia. Although the Royal Company was not allowed to have a say in the Acapulco trade, previous restrictions on Indian, Chinese, and Japanese products were abolished, and these goods now went to Spain duty-free. The company also promoted agriculture by giving large sums of money to farmers to cultivate indigo, cotton, sugar, and other crops. Perhaps Basco's largest and longest-lasting measure was the tobacco monopoly. Brought over from the Americas, tobacco became popular among natives of all ages who started smoking it in droves. Everyone, from your grandma to your doggy, smoked a cigar. For years, people grew tobacco in their own backyards, rolling their own cigars and smoking the day away. With the colony in need of funds to defend itself against more raiders and seeing a large source of revenue in tobacco, the Spanish government decided to monopolize it. Certain areas were designated as strictly for tobacco production, initially in Luzon, but soon including Visayas as well. Regions like Ilocos or Cagayan, which previously specialized in other crops like rice, were now forced to abandon them in favor of tobacco. Only these areas could grow tobacco, and nothing but tobacco. Any tobacco you grew was not for personal use, but for the government. Worse still, farmers were expected to sell their tobacco crops at government-dictated prices that were detrimental to the farmers. In fact, police regiments, or resguardos, were even sent to the mountains to shut down illegal tobacco fields and arrest smugglers. The project ended up being a win for the Spanish treasury, with mountains of pesos flooding Spanish coffers. Tobacco became one of the country's biggest export crops, along with sugar and abaca. Part of the reason for its success may be due to Basco getting the support of Indio leaders by opening low-level administrative positions that exempted them from tribute and the polo. At the same time, many Indios resented the new restrictions placed on what had previously been a crop they could easily grow in their own homes. It did not help that the monopoly bred abuses and corruption in some of the areas where it was implemented. For example, resguardos in Luzon would extort and harass travelers and merchants for bribes and would even plant tobacco in the latter's merchandise as evidence. The tobacco monopoly would be added to the list of grievances the Indios had against the Spanish regime and another cause for rebellions. The tobacco monopoly also affected the role of Philippine women who made up the majority of cigar factory workers. These were strong, working women who went out of their way to provide for their families. While many people believe in the notion of the 19th century Filipina as docile, meek, and submissive, 
In reality, these workers proved to be tough, especially against abuses and exploitation. Strikes were common, and there were cases of supervisors being kicked out due to complaints of them being too handsy with workers, way before modern feminism came onto the scene. Female cigar workers were likewise among the first Filipino women to take their work outside the home. Even though his policies helped transform the Philippines from a dumping ground for Spain's rejects, Basco faced heavy opposition from the Spanish elite in Manila. Opposition especially came from the merchants and members of the Manila Audiencia, who were content with making money from the galleons. Many were incensed at the idea of having to farm, with one petition to the crown flat out stating that the reason why they had ventured all the way to the Philippines was to get rich easily through the galleons and not to get their hands dirty by farming. After years of fighting between both sides, in 1787, Jose Basco Ibargas resigned from the governor generalship and left the Philippines. Many of Basco's policies and the institutions he set up would remain intact long after his departure. The Royal Economic Society would remain a force in the colony until it finally closed down in the 1890s. Despite opposition by Manila merchants who wanted to retain control of the Manila galleons, the Royal Company of the Philippines would also remain in business until 1830. In addition, the tobacco monopoly continued to serve as a source of revenue for the government, as well as of anger among Indios well until the last decades of Spanish rule. The Spanish Philippines was not the only place in the Spanish Empire that was going through some changes. 1812 saw the passage of the liberal Cadiz Constitution, which severely curtailed the power of the Spanish monarchy. Then followed the Spanish-American Wars of Independence led by Simón Bolívar. Not wanting to be left out, New Spain became the stage for its own war for Mexican independence. The war was started in 1810 by a secular priest named Manuel Hidalgo and would end with Mexico's independence in 1821. In the end, all that remained of Spain's empire in the Americas was Puerto Rico and Cuba. These events would heavily affect the Philippines, which until then had been governed by Spain through Mexico. One of the most hit in Spanish Philippines was the Manila Galleons. In 1813, the galleons were officially suspended, and in 1815, the last official galleon returned to Manila. With the loss of this lucrative source of revenue, the Spaniards in Manila realized that there was no going back and that the only way to make a living was by opening up the colony to trade and further developing its economy. The seeds of change were first planted in 1814, when the British government forced the Spanish government to open other ports in the Philippines to foreign trade and to allow the establishment of foreign companies in the colony. Soon, German, British, French, and even American trade houses were set up in Manila. These companies helped further develop agriculture in the colony. Overall, the foreign companies seemed to have an even bigger presence in the Philippines than Spanish enterprises which had long ignored the Philippine trade 
due to the restrictions imposed by the government, as well as their preference for the American market. It is thus not surprising that until the end of Spanish rule, the Philippines' biggest trading partner was not the mother country itself, but the United Kingdom. As all these developments unfolded, the beginnings of a unique Filipino identity were beginning to take root. At the time, many Indios were restricted to their towns and settlements since they could not leave without the local friar's permission. Add to that the fact that the Philippine colony was split into numerous provinces based on languages, and it's not surprising that many natives did not yet entertain the idea of United Philippine Nation, identifying only with their respective provinces and regional identities. However, by the late 18th century, a small but growing number of insulares started seeing themselves as more than mere subjects of the Spanish crown. The insulares were the only ones to call themselves Filipinos, represented the colony in the Spanish parliamentary body, the Cortes. Just like their cousins in South America who started to believe in a uniquely American identity, these Philippine-born Spaniards started believing in a distinct Filipino identity that distinguished them from the Peninsulares. The most prominent of them was El Conde Filipino, the Filipino Count, Luis Rodriguez Parella. Varela was born to a Spanish Peninsular couple on February 13, 1768. At the age of 19, he became a member of Manila's city council, earning the right to maintain the position permanently three years later. By quote-unquote, earning, I mean he purchased it. Though writers such as Nick Joaquin have portrayed Varela as a very liberal Spaniard who was influenced by the French Revolution and the French Enlightenment, he was actually pretty conservative. Although he defended the constitution and the natives, Varela was nevertheless a loyal subject of the crown and a devout Catholic who prioritized the interests of the king and church to his own. In 1790, Varela helped manage and finance celebrations in Manila to celebrate the coronation of Charles IV. This helped him receive the Order of Charles III on February 28, 1791. A few years later, on January 18, 1795, the king granted him the title by which he is now known, the Filipino Count. Barella was so loyal to the Spanish crown that even when Charles IV's son, Ferdinand VII, was deposed by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1808, in favor of the latter's brother, Joseph, he continued to profess his loyalty to Ferdinand in his pamphlets. In one of these, titled Historical Proclamation, he called on all inhabitants of the Philippines to support the king against Napoleon. Pleading for the Indians to support the monarchy, he wrote, The Spaniard, your father and friend, shall defend you. He will sacrifice himself for you. In addition, unlike actual Enlightenment-influenced Spaniards like Governor General Basco, 
who wanted to end dependence on the Gallians, Varela was a staunch defender of the status quo. This was, of course, in order for local officials such as himself to enjoy the fruits of the Acapulco trade. If there was anything subversive about Varela, it was his belief that Insulares, like himself, should have more of a say in running the colony along with the Peninsulares, a belief that he shared with his Latin American brethren before the wars of independence. Nevertheless, he never challenged the legitimacy of the colonial state per se. On the contrary, one governor general even praised his writings as patriotic. At most, Varela criticized the ineptitude of some officials as harmful to the interests of the king and the natives. He would even defend the Spanish army and religious orders in the Philippines from attacks by critics in the Americas and Spain. In 1822, Varela, along with other prominent insulares, was imprisoned for allegedly writing several anti-peninsular and anti-colonial leaflets and was deported to Spain the following year. By that time, Ferdinand VII was back in power. An absolutist monarch, Ferdinand bitterly hated the Cadiz constitution that had curbed much of his authority and abolished it in 1814, shortly after his return to power. In 1820, a mutiny by liberal soldiers forced him to reinstate the constitution. But three years later, with the help of French monarchist troops, Ferdinand once again abolished the constitution. While in Spain, Varela published two pamphlets where he praised the victory of Ferdinand VII's absolutist forces against the liberals and defended the friars in the Philippines. While this has been mostly portrayed as him changing his mind, it is actually pretty consistent with the conservatism he showed back in the Philippines. Not all Insulares shared the same love and loyalty for Spain as Varela had. Like their South American counterparts, many were bitter at being passed over for posts by lesser qualified Peninsulares. The Peninsulares, in turn, looked down on all Filipinos, including the Insulares. The animosity and distrust between the two groups would only worsen after Spain's loss of its American colonies, which brought further suspicion to the Insulares, as many of those rebellions were led by Criollos. Soon, these tensions reached a breaking point when some Insulares partook in another common pastime in Philippine history, armed uprisings. On October 30, 1822, Juan Antonio Martinez became Governor General of the Philippines. He replaced the mostly insular and Latin American officers in the army with peninsulares, which heightened tensions. It was under his administration that numerous Criollo reformers, among them Varela, were deported out of suspicion of treason. Martinez also reassigned several insular officers to the provinces. One of those officers was the Manila-born army captain Andres Novales, who was reassigned to Misamis in Mindanao on the pretext of pursuing Moro pirates. I've seen different accounts on his background. Some say that he was a pure Spaniard, while others claim he was a Spanish mestizo. It's also been said that he had Mexican ancestry. 
In any case, the government's suspicions about Novales proved to be correct, as she actually made plans to stage a rebellion and kick the hated Peninsulares out of the Philippines before his reassignment. As fate would have it, on June the 1st, 1823, the day Novales was to leave for Misamis, a storm broke out, postponing his trip. He saw his chance. At 11 p.m., he went to the barracks in Intramuros and invited the non-commissioned troops to join him in his plan to fight for independence from the Spaniards. The rebels proceeded to tie up the Spanish officers stationed in the area. At 12.30 a.m., one of Novales' co-conspirators, a certain Manila-born Lieutenant Ruiz, went to the house of General Folgueras, who, at the time, was working as Governor General in Martinez's place. He stabbed General Folgueras and took the keys to the city. Lieutenant Ruiz then went to the jail and released the prisoners, replacing them with the top officials of the colony. At 2 a.m., Captain Andres Novales proclaimed himself Emperor of the Philippines. The mutineers first tried to capture the heavily fortified military fortress of Fort Santiago to no avail. In fact, Novales was turned away by his own brother, who was stationed in the fort, and refused to join the rebellion. Anticipating a counterattack by the government, the rebels placed two cannons on every street corner in Intramuros. Soon, Governor Martinez and his forces, supported by troops from Pampanga, entered Intramuros through the Santa Lucia Gate, and after three hours of fighting, Novales and his army were defeated. At 5 a.m., Novales was shot, along with Ruiz and some of the other conspirators, putting an end to the short-lived reign of the Emperor of the Philippines. At the time when the native majority identified mostly with their respective ethno-linguistic groups, insular nationalists can rightfully be called the pioneers of modern Filipino nationalism, with all other prior separatist movements and rebellions being their precursors. Not only were the insulares the first to refer to themselves as Filipinos regardless of province or town of origin, but the nationalism of 19th century Filipino activists and revolutionaries can be traced to Varela. In fact, Varela was cited as an inspiration by a fellow insular, Father Jose Burgos, who would go on to influence the Philippine national hero, Jose Rizal. At the same time, however, while some insulares like Varela defended the rights of Indios, the overall outlook of Criollo nationalists was still far narrower than their successors. Like their American counterparts, they mainly believed that it should be Philippine-born Spaniards such as themselves, not the peninsular foreigners, who should call the shots. It did not necessarily mean that they wanted to completely overturn the social order, as shown by Barrera's conservatism. Nevertheless, Philippine history should not just be the history of native Filipinos, but all Filipinos, regardless of race and ethnicity, along with their contributions. To that end, regardless of his intentions and loyalties, Varela had secured his place in the country's history. With constant uprisings, Moro attacks, and the loss of the Americas, it is not surprising that the Spaniards 
became more determined than ever to keep their few remaining colonies, clamping down on even the mildest reformist aspirations. As the Philippines reached the mid-19th century, tensions between peninsulares and Filipinos of all races and ethnicities would worsen as the Spanish struggled to maintain their hold on the Philippines. This is Philippine History Z, a podcast hosted by me, Eman Lavinia, with Jose Ampil as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, as well as the sources of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast's official site, philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com. In the next episode, we continue on with the 19th century as non-white Filipinos start rising up the social and economic ladder and being introduced to new outlooks, which would only further increase tensions with the Spanish regime. Once again, this is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.